Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. This is the last episode of 2023. Um, and what a year it has been. I first of all wanted to thank all of our sponsors for their support this year. Uh, without our sponsors, uh, this show would not be in existence. So I hope that all of you will show your support for them by checking out their products and services. Uh, they mean the world to this show. Uh, so thank you to all of them. Um, I also want to thank all of our listeners. Um, it has been a hell of a ride. This is actually the end of the third year for the show. And I remember when we started out, our first episode was Beats by Dre with Simon Wasif uh, when he was working uh, on the brand at RGA. And, you know, going into that episode, I was scared. I was nervous. I didn't know what I was heading in for, heading into. And um, uh, I, I I had a feeling that there was a gap in the, in the market here and that there was a, people would, really be into this, but I was also really nervous doing it. Once we got that episode out, uh, things just started to snowball, and we began to get access over time uh, to brilliant talent like Simon uh, from around the world, and people that were doing great work from small agencies and small brands and countries around the world. Uh, we'd love to be able to represent even more countries going forward, uh, and, I, and I make a commitment to doing that. And smaller agencies going forward, I make that commitment too. Uh, but it's snowballed, and we are about to hit one million million downloads for this show. And uh, it's been a long road to get there, but it is amazing to think that when we started out that we would get to where we are today. So it's um, it's a real privilege to have access to all of this talent and to, to have them be a part of the show. Um, I learned something new from every episode. I hope that you as a listener also do. Um, we uh, we like to experiment on this show. We like to try some new things from time to time. Sometimes they work out. Sometimes they don't. Uh, there's times when I, f I feel we just scratched the surface on an issue, and that can be disappointing for me, but I, I, I always come away you know, feeling that I've learned something new, um, and I hope that you do too. So um, I really do think, as we look into 2024, the opportunity for shows like ours, and there are many great shows that are produced around the world that are in the marketing field and I tip my hat to all of them because I know how hard they work like we do to get these show out shows out for you um, but I really do feel we've only scratched the surface on the on the opportunity for these shows I would guess that maybe we're we're like we're, we're reaching maybe 10 percent of the opportunity and you know getting the support of, of listeners and them circulating it to their friends and as we continue to see great growth and I hope we continue to see it in 2024 I think the opportunity are really massive uh, for good content. I think people are craving it as long as it's good. So in 2024, one of the things we're going to be doing is we're going to be making a major push into media and media agencies. And this has been triggered by the new series we're producing right now called um, Connections uh, Role in Effectiveness. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, I want to make a bigger push into the media shops this coming year. And hopefully we'll be able to uh, bubble up some of the great work and the great uh, talent that are making things uh, happen in that uh, side of the industry. So um, 
That is it for my nattering on here. I wanted again, thank everybody. I hope you guys had a good 2023, uh, and I hope the, uh, I wish you all the best for 2024. I wanted to now introduce the uh, new, the last show of the year, which is uh, something that Mark and I have done. This will be the third year. It's, uh, it's Mark Ritson's top 10 marketing moments of 2023. I hope you enjoy it, and we will see you in the new year. Here's Mark. We are going to go through our uh, our top 10, your top 10 marketing moments of 2023. We've done yes. this. This is our third year doing this. So um, we will uh, talk about each and, and, we'll, and I'm sure what you'll do is underscore what we have to learn as marketers from each of these 10 as we go through them. So let's start off with uh, the first one. It is Amazon's Christmas turkey. What is this one about, Mark? Well, this one's obviously quite recent. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, Amazon launched their Christmas ad. I think everyone now is following uh, the same pattern, increasingly so every Christmas. So it, this all began about 10 years ago with John Lewis, the British department store, doing a very emotional, festive ad. And now I think most brands are jumping on the same uh, train and Amazon have done it. They've done one in house. It's a you've probably seen the ad. It's a delightful yep. ad with three relatively senior women who are uh, who use Amazon to buy some uh, some form of apparatus that allows them to sled down a hill. And and, and, and what is it? It's a Beatles song. If I, that's uh, in, is it a Beatles song that's playing in the background? Yeah, it, I believe it's technically called the kind of shit you can only do if you've got an Amazon budget. So yeah, they've, yeah. Bought, they've got the rights to "In My Life," the John Lennon, uh, just the song. piano track, uh, yeah. just the piano, the piano track that plays. It's it's uh, it's. I think it it adds so much value to that spot just to hear that. Yeah, I think you're right. I th and the bravery of taking. You know, buying the rights to a Beatles song and then not using the Beatles version. I, I assume it's the same cost anyway, but but it's a good ad, man. I mean, you know, it, it, well, we'll get to I whether agree. it's a good ad or not. So it's produced in-house and British advertising magazine campaign has a, I think it's a weekly spot, which is Turkey of the Week, the worst ad released that week. Campaign magazine voted it Turkey of Christmas Turkey of the Week. And then a couple of days later, a man by the name of Andrew Tyndall wrote for The Drum, which is kind of a competing marketing advertising magazine, that it wasn't a turkey. It was actually one of the most effective ads of the season. And I picked it up because I found it fascinating on a couple of levels. So the campaign journalists were basically just, this, we don't like this ad, I think because it's in-house and it's you know not made with a top-tier agency. They started from there and went on to critique it from that point onwards. But Andrew Tyndall's not a journalist. He's the global director of the System One ad testing firm. So the difference between the drum uh, article and the campaign article is data. So in the sense that the drum has it, thanks to System One. And what Tyndall was saying was basically, this is testing at the very top threshold, top 0.1%. Of all the ads we've looked at, it's Amazon's best ad ever. Uh, it's fantastic. And I found that interesting for a couple of different reasons. First, because I think it's symptomatic of a change that's going on in advertising, where I, I really think now we're in a place where pre-testing and evaluating of creative work has moved out of the voodoo stage 
and is, I don't want to use the scientific word, but is predictive, is quantitative, is reliable. And if you're spending more than a hundred thousand bucks on an ad, it's a no brainer now to test these things out. And I think campaigns critique was something from the 20th century. And I think Andrew Tyndall's comment was very much something of the present. But the other reason I really enjoyed it, other than the the stoush that went on, is I posted something on LinkedIn about this, and it went off, and it got you know six hundred thousand views, and God knows how many comments, thousands of hundreds and thousands of comments. But most of the comments were from marketers and advertising people saying whether they did or didn't like the ad, which is exactly not the point. The point is, I, I actually didn't like the ad very much. I thought it was a, probably going to be an effective ad. It's not, not, and I, I thought it was pretty badly done. My hat goes off to the Amazon team because it works with the consumer and they've done a brilliant job. And my personal taste has nothing to do with it. I'm an N of one and a very strange N. And I think that's something a lot of marketers still struggle with is the idea that we don't, we shouldn't really have a personal point of view. It's indulgent, outdated, and inaccurate. I think we have to, where we can go with the data. So I found that whole debate very interesting. So, uh, number nine, Netflix increases prices. What's this about? Badly. Does it badly? So, Netflix is an interesting case. If you step back outside of marketing and look at the sort of strategy chatter about streaming, it's clear that there are certain players out there, obviously the likes of Apple and Disney, who are going to be there, whatever. But if you follow the rule of three and other predictions, there's just still too many streamers out there. And as you know, Paramount's going to obviously disappear. We've already had a, a slew of other rivals begin to fade. Netflix is kind of in the middle. It has to make more. It's got the content. It's got the brand. It is profitable, but I think it has to get bigger fast against some gigantic players or what will most likely happen down the track or it'll get acquired. And Netflix are aware of this. And I have to say they've done a good job of becoming a profitable entity. That's been done a number of different ways, but one of the levers they're pulling is getting their prices up, and they've been increasing prices pretty much on an annual basis every year. That makes sense. What doesn't make sense is the way they're doing it. And and so for the for the listener, it's important to understand when it comes to pricing, there's three parts to pricing. There's the research you do to work out what the price should be. There's obviously the actual price itself that we tend to focus on, and then there's the manner in which we communicate and frame and contextualize the price. My point for the last 10 years about pricing, which is really the lost function of marketing, is that marketers can't control pricing, but they sure as shit can contribute to the research on pricing that no one else does well because they don't know how to research consumers. And particularly on the framing and communication of price, which in my experience is more important than the price itself. And I want to repeat that because it's a bold claim, but one that I can back up. Whether it's $6.99 or $7.99 is less important than how I present the price, where I present it, how I communicate about it, et cetera, et cetera. So with that in mind, I'm just surprised that Netflix, such a big, smart company that does price increases so often, does it so badly. So I'll read you what you would have received for... I assume you're a Netflix customer, are you, Fergus? Yeah. So I'll read you what you would have got in the in your in your email, okay? Hi, Fergus. So, sorry, the title of the, of the message is Updating Prices 
to bring you more. So straight away, you know, you're getting fucked with, right? <laughs> Updating yeah. price. It's like saying, I'm going to, I'm going to beat you over the back of the head with a wooden stick to make you feel better. You know what I mean? Anyway, updating prices to bring you more. Hi, Fergus. We hope you're enjoying everything Netflix has to offer. We're updating the price of the premium plan to $22.99, bringing your new monthly total to $22.99 on November the 25th. Your new membership details, your premium package, $22.99 a month. So that's pretty much everything you shouldn't do when you do a price increase. You're not giving people enough notice. You're not explaining the rationale behind it in consumer terms. And you're not calling it a price increase, which everybody knows it is. You're using a euphemism. So it's kind of the worst of the worst of the worst. And I'm just surprised, given Netflix has been adept at other things, moving, you know, uh, freeloading consumers into a paying thing. They've got all that worked out that their pricing is so useless. I suspect, and I don't know this, it's because Netflix doesn't have marketers involved in price. So they've got operations people, they've got finance people, they've got blunt instruments working in the pricing department. And the, the great tragedy, and I've seen this over and over again, is when these companies exclude marketers from the pricing process, they end up, first of all, underpricing, and second of all, doing the price uh, increase change in a manner which is self-defeating. You know, we could add so much value if marketers were not in control of, but involved in pricing. So there, uh, for, for anybody who wants to get more details on this and you can see the way that the, um, the argument has been framed in the positive way, you can download the deck and we'll put a link on our website so people can yeah. look at the detail yeah. that you have in your deck. The next one that we have here is uh, number eight. And it's another dimension of pricing. It's Tesla's discount. Tesla's discount strategy or discounted prices. Tell us about this one and why it's why it's important. So I'm not a Musk hater, first of all. I, I, I admire the man. I, I'm not a left or a right-wing person. Um, and I think Musk, in a really incompetent way, is trying his best to be to, to sort of dodge between the left and the right-wing factions, uh, you know, and 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 be something independent. So I, I, I'm I'm still a card-carrying member of the Elon Musk is ineffective and, and sometimes stupid, but, but uh, you know, a, a very important, interesting human being. Having said that, I have to say that what's been going on with Tesla this year really is a massive source of disillusionment. So as everyone can probably remember, in January, globally, Tesla knocked between 5 and almost 20% off all of its models. And it did it uh, with some kind of weird explanation. I'll give you the, the actual quote was, a partial normalization of cost inflation is the reason why now we can, you know, reduce re reduce these cars. And it made no, made no sense at all. And the point I, I was making about this, which has turned out to be, I think, quite accurate, is you, Tesla are, are about to experience this year when they when they made this decision all the downsides of discounting or reducing price. So they send a negative signal to the market. The opposite of when when you advertise, and again we forget this, the biggest advantage of advertising, arguably in many cases, is just signaling. It doesn't matter what the ad says or what the creative is. When you take a full page in the FT or the Wall Street Journal, what you're saying is. Look how rich we are. Look how successful we are. Look how confident we are in our product. Now have a look at the ad. So the signaling effect is huge. It's the opposite when you discount. 
you're saying we're losing confidence, things aren't as good, we're not quite as sure as we used to be. You also create tremendous user, user disillusionment, which we saw in January and February. People pay full price and then go, what do you mean it's now cheaper? Yeah. It has questionable impact on top line. So, you know, you see this sales bump. When you look at the research, that sales bump, particularly in things like automotive, isn't people that wouldn't have bought your car buying your car because it's 20% less. There's a little bit of that. It's mostly people that were waiting to buy your car, buying it early. And that's crucial for later on because it causes this bullwhip effect whereby we soak up all the demand, we drive up ourselves by 25%, we run out of cars, so we make more cars. And suddenly there's no demand because we've essentially pulled forward all the demand. So we start thinking organizationally, you know what? When we run promotions, suddenly we get all these sales. So we run another promotion because we've got lots of stock and because we're starting to believe now that when we run a promotion is when we see our sales. And so what happens is that's the start of that vicious cycle we see in so many organizations where the addiction to sales promotion begins and then takes over the company. And we've seen it at Tesla. The, the, you know, Since January, there's been a whole legion of price discounting going on. They've absolutely lost that pricing discipline, which is one of their great strengths. Number seven, Guinness becomes number one. Tell us about this. Well, I'll be interested to see how it plays out in the U.S. I don't think it, it's possible in the U.S., but I bet you're seeing a, a bump there too. In the United Kingdom, at the end of 2022 into 23, when the data came through, Guinness had become the best-selling pint of beer in pubs in the U.K., which is quite an achievement given it's a general popular beer, but still to some degree a niche stout product, and it had become the most requested beer. Uh, and there's a couple of things going on there that really make it a wonderful story. Um, first, I think this is a story of Diageo being better than everyone else. If you meet that Diageo gang, and again, I've got no no connections with them directly. We've had them on the show, but, so we've done a whole episode. What, what did you think? What did you think of them? I mean, you know, you might have a different opinion. What was as, your as marketers? Yeah, I, I thought there. I thought I, I every brand that I've had on this show that is a Diageo brand, we've had like four or five of them on. That's right. That's right. Are exceptional Bailey. marketers and and have exceptional strategists in house. So I, yeah. I think that they're very disciplined. They are very meticulous and they're very insightful. So I, I'm a huge fan of what they do. Yeah, I totally agree. And and they're very humble too. So they sort of downplay it. When I found this this out that Guinness had become the best selling point, I tried to get the head of Guinness marketing to sort of talk to me and for me to profile him. And he, he literally won't want me to mention his name here. So I'm not going to. He really was abject. He was like, don't talk about me. It's a, it's a team effort. And I think that goes all the way up to the CMO, you know, to the new CEO. I think it's a wonderfully humble group. But when you learn about how they do it, they're, they're exceptional, right? They, 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 their planning during COVID was very much, they did a lot of social listening. They worked out that people were longing for a pint of Guinness and they played that up right through COVID so that when people finally could get back into a pub, there was this pent up desire for Guinness that really propelled them through most of 22, 23. They've got their own in-house media mix modeling, which really helps them uh, make media choices. They're very good on their, what they call their key brand assets, their codes, their distinctive brand assets. They use them beautifully. 
they do all the planning stuff well, handful of objectives, learning from the previous year. And the thing that I learned most from the Diageo gang that I spoke to is they are very proud of keeping it simple. It's not one of those teams that starts banging on about marketing science and the complexities of programmatic. I think correctly, they just get the basics right and get the basics right each time. And for me, as I get older and more experienced in marketing, I think that's really all we have to do is understand the foundations of marketing. It's simple but not easy, and then and then apply them properly. And that's the story of Guinness. Number six. The end of wear out. Um, big fan of this topic. Let's talk about this one. So I grew up in the late 80s, 90s in marketing. And one of the many concepts that we were taught and which became embedded in our heads was the concept of wear out. So it was mostly derived from experimental research, as most advertising theory was in the 70s and 80s. And essentially, when you expose college students to ads and you measure a response, what you see is it takes two, three, four repetitions for the ad to reach its peak impact. And then after a certain further number of repetitions, it begins to get less effective. And in some cases, actually becomes detrimental. Yeah. That's actually the basis for the three uh, exposures of advertising that we used to have when we were going after effective frequency. But it's also the driver of why most marketers are ready to can a campaign after it's run for usually a very short period of time because, quote-unquote, it wears out. What's been happening this year, and it's kind of all just happened, again, back to that idea that we're getting more empirical and accurate in measuring advertising uh, impact, is a, a whole host of research firms are all finding the same thing, which is basically that it wear out doesn't actually happen. In an experimental setting, it might happen. But when you actually look at advertising in the wild, when it's not noticed as much, when there are big gaps between exposure, um, in reality, an old ad, if it's a good ad, remains good for a very, very long, maybe permanent period of time. Now, the, the, the caveat is a shit ad stays shit as well. But the point is there isn't this depreciation or half-life that most agencies and clients believe. And again, this comes out of analytic partners research. They looked at 50,000 ads of which almost all of them hadn't worn out when they were pulled. Comes out of Kantar's work that shows ads that are lasting for 10 years, remaining completely as effective as, as they were on day one. And system one, showing that the average effectiveness of an ad that's a month old is exactly the same as one that's two years old and every intervening point in between. And if you want an anecdotal example that's festive, I think the Coca-Cola company are a brilliant illustration, right? I've almost found it funny over the years. So, so various different marketers at Coke keep producing a special annual Christmas ad. Some are good, some are shit. But they're always beaten in the effectiveness impact stakes by the holidays are coming big truck ad, right? Yeah. And that, that ad's 25 years old. If wear out was true... That's not possible. And and what I love about it is it illustrates this. This is a, a kind of a small effectiveness point that has a huge implication for clients, right? First of all, go and get your old ads out. Second, don't be reaching for a new campaign every quarter because you don't have to, right? Because as we said earlier, four out of five of your replacement ads aren't as good as the one that you're removing. And finally, and I've seen this a lot now with a couple of brands here in Australia, spend big on creative 
spend big on pre-testing because ultimately if you're going to spend 20 25% of your budget on creative spend a little bit more create an amazing ad but then don't pull it after one season or one year run it for 2 3 4 years the data suggests that if it's a good ad it will stay good and you've just earned yourself in year 2 3 4 20 points of excess share of voice i think that has a major implication going forward for the cadence of advertising our next one number 5 Barbie brand extension, huge story in marketing this year. Tell us about this. Well, I mean, we had to have it in there, right? I mean, it, it sort of came up when everyone talked about the big events of the year. I don't think there's a lot new in this. I think what it teaches us that maybe we've forgotten is the power of brand extension and, and also the lack of risk in brand extension, which I think is less well-known. So when a when a toy brand... Uh, extends itself into a movie um you see all the advantages of all the potential advantages of brand extension remember brand extension different from line extension brand extension is when we cross into a new category and the research which has been around for a long time that managers don't know about going all the way back to bob loken and debbie Rodderjohn and all those great marketing professors is it's counterintuitive if you jump a big distance from your core category into the new category. So from toys to cinema, what happens is you've got a beautiful doorway into a new category with new revenue, but there's almost no risk if you screw up in the new category of any damage back in the core category. And, and that's a kind of a counterintuitive thing. So you get a, a, you know, a, a positive flow hypothesis, as it was called at the time. You get all this lovely awareness and equity flowing into the movie. So you're essentially hitting the ground running. People know the characters. They remember the characters. You don't have to build it. But at the same time, if that movie had been a dud, and it obviously wasn't, it wouldn't have damaged at all the perception of Barbie back in its toy world. It would have still done it a lot of good thanks to the awareness and salience, etc. So th th there's a real kind of classic lesson here from 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 the Barbie movie, which is don't forget about brand extension. And and I'd say one more point here: when you study brands that are old, you know, I spent a long time working with LVMH in Paris, and the brands were you know like 50 years if they were anything. Usually they were 200 years old. What you begin to learn is that brand extension is the route to eternal life for brands. Every category will eventually die. There's very few categories that are going to stick around for 300, 400 years. But brands can can navigate that by using what's essentially to begin with a small brand extension becomes the new future core. And you can look at everyone from Nokia to Gucci, who started out in categories that are now completely defunct, but are massive in what, what were essentially brand extensions back in the day. So for all those reasons, you look at the Barbie movie and go, this is the best of it. There was low risk there. There was an enormous injection of salience, affection, revitalization for the brand. The only real proper downside of brand extension is internal. It, there's a real challenge where sometimes the company devotes too much time, too much money, too many people to the brand extension, and they neglect the core. But of course, we look at Barbie, even that was tick the box. Mattel didn't make that movie, they licensed it out. So it's really a perfect example of what I think marketers have forgotten in more recent years, which is brand extension is fucking amazing, you know? So number four, Unilever revisits purpose. 
boy knows I actually celebrate the hell out of this one. <laughs> so first of all, let's do the caveat. I love Unilever as a company. I love the people. They have a social conscience. They are the best meaning people uh, in in FMCG. So this is not a critique of that. I just think over the last 10 years, they have been part of this gigantic losing of the plot around brand purpose. So if I wind you back about seven or eight years, I did this famous debate with Professor Byron Sharp, the Festival of Marketing, where we had a right old ding-dong argument and blah, blah, blah. The, uh, there was a moment there where a guy from Unilever stood up and asked us about purpose. And just for this rare 60 seconds, we both totally agreed with each other that it was madness, right? Madness. <laughs> and yet we've lived through this era where socio-political purpose has dominated much of the discussion in the UK, definitely in the US. And I've I've held my same view throughout, and I think I'm now getting to a point where I'm I'm being proved right. So, and I by the way, I got a lot of shit. If you go back six, seven years, people were actually questioning my morals and my like how I was raising my kids and stuff. And they just, you know, it comes down to a couple of things. So let's talk about brand purpose. Uh, first of all, uh, brand purpose is not going to make you more money, uh, make you more profitable, make you more successful. It might, but it probably won't. And that's the key point that Unilever and everyone else got wrong. They did all this shonky research saying the brands that we have uh, focused on with brand purpose are way more successful and growing way faster than our non-purpose brands. So we're going to introduce it to all of our brands. And it was like, come on, guys, right? These are you, you focused on your big brands and your fastest growing brands to, to give them purpose. They already had that dynamic there. And so a lot of executives at, at, at Unilever really lost the plot here. And th there's two levels to this. The first level, as we say, is purpose is wonderful. Have a brand purpose, but don't make the naive teenage assumption that by having brand purpose, I will attract more customers, charge a higher price and grow my capitalist, you know, success. Purpose is probably going to cost you something. It may, as as in the case of, you know, Patagonia, it might cost you everything, but that's okay because, and this is the killer point, the purpose of purpose is purpose. We choose to do these things because we believe in them, even if they cost us money. Yeah. And, and that was the first point. The second point Unilever got wrong was saying that, you know, we run a house of brands at Unilever, but we're going to make all of our brands have a purpose agenda. Now, that makes sense when you look at Dove or Ben & Jerry's. It makes no sense when you look at Hellman's Mayonnaise or Pot Noodle. And so there was this push inside Unilever, the purpose group versus the slightly more uh, realistic group that has eventually been won out. I mean, Alan Job, the, the CEO, I think was pushed early, it's hard to say, been replaced with Hein Schumacher. And Schumacher came in and kind of immediately said the stuff that, not just me, but a lot of people have been saying for a long time. And I'll give you the actual quote, because it's a beautiful quote, and it proves that Schumacher gets it. Our focus on purpose is laudable, and it inspires many people to join and stay with Unilever. So we must never lose it. But I don't think we advance the cause of purpose by force-fitting it across every brand. So we will not force-fit this across the entire portfolio. For some brands, it simply won't be relevant, and that's okay. And what I love about this, and by the way, this is a general criticism of marketers, is Heinz Schumacher 
is able to do something which most marketers are unable to do, which is hold two competing thoughts in his head at the same time. He's not going purpose is bullshit. He's not going purpose is going to is is a default for business success. He's saying we want to keep it at Unilever, but also we don't need to force it on all of our brands. So I like it, but also I don't like it in some cases. And that's the nuance we've been missing. Yeah, and I think we're in a we're, we're, next year is the year we're going to enter a much more realistic space when it comes to the purpose debate. And and it's been, a sh- I have to say, a shamedly naive and embarrassing period for marketing. Number three, rebranding Twitter. Look, I, there's not a lot to say here other than it was totally and utterly stupid. Um, I don't think I'm surprising anyone. Uh, the way it was done was stupid. The reasons for doing it were stupid. The new name was stupid. The logo was stupid. Uh, the fallout has been managed badly. The whole thing was bad. The only point I make here is, other than acknowledging it was a big moment and it was dumb, was, again, it, it does make me question whether Musk is really on top of the game as much as I thought he was. But also, the point I made in in in, in the top 10 list was... Yes, rebranding Twitter was stupid, but rebranding anything is stupid. Like when I teach it on the brand management course, I, you know, we talk about repositioning, we talk about revitalization. When we talk about rebranding, I just say don't do it unless you legally have to. And people push back, but ultimately there's no pushback. If you understand brands, you understand that it's mostly about salience, distinctiveness, and coming to mind. And if you wipe all that away, and have to start again, there's never a reason why that makes sense unless legally someone is saying to you on September 1st, you can't have that name anymore. That's the only reason for this. So it's not rebranding Twitter that's stupid. It's it's rebranding in general. But what's really interesting to me in this case um, is that what happened here, because this brand is now so closely associated with Musk and mm. because every reference to that brand ties Twitter to Musk and ties Twitter to X and X to Twitter, that the earned media that he gained and continues to gain has made that, that shift. I don't know whether it it is, it's not, it is not a good move, but I'm not sure it makes a damn difference because Twitter had become so associated with him and also with the behavior of people on Twitter. It's just transferred to X. Uh, And I think because this is a brand that is Elon Musk now, um, it may be a little bit different. I'd say that's true. The one caveat is how Twitter makes its money is from very insecure, very nervous CMOs and major agencies. And the more you associate X with Musk, particularly given it's got a mysterious black X over it, the more volatile and risky the advertising decision is. And I think that's I, I don't think and, it necessarily... and, that's, and that's a separate issue because yeah. even with Twitter, um, you know his sort of his his behavior, which is sort of maniacal in my mind, uh, would have been in place uh, w- whether it was Twitter Anywhere. or X, right? I yeah. mean his his obsession. I'm actually ironically, I'm reading uh, Walter I- Isaacson's biography of of Elon Musk mm. now. For months, I said I would never touch it, but he was actually. <laughs> uh, but but um, Walter Isaacson was on a, a, a podcast I listened to recently, and I, I love that guy. He's so great, Isaacson. He's good. He's very good. 
And I read his uh, I, I read his Steve Jobs biography also. But it's interesting, you know, that when um, obviously there's been an obsession that Musk has had with the with the with the term with the letter X. Uh, he wanted yeah. originally PayPal to be called right. X, right? And I think one of his kids is called X. He's obviously at Space X. He has this obsession with this this. Yeah graphic and, and with the letter. Some people say you sh- he should never have changed it. I, I think because people say it takes so long to rebuild a brand if you walk away from the brand and the brand equities that it has. I think this name change didn't really suffer from that because of the fact that it's Elon Musk and it's Elon Musk is that brand, unfortunately, not much else. What you just said is entirely true, except for the revenue that's derived from advertisers who I think will, inc- as his as his uh, behavior moves up and down and left and right, I think that it will scare off more advertisers. Number two, Bud Light. Let's talk about <laughs> that. <laughs> Holy shit, right? Well, I mean, so uh, we watched it aghast in the rest of the world, right? So um, I think it was probably a, a fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 investment. If you add up the original payment made to the spokesperson and then the sporting offer that was made it was some kind of you know free tickets or whatever the hell it was they probably had it at about 60 grand line item and even an optimistic assessment of the cost to ab inbev is probably about half a billion dollars is what it cost them right this year so um, we're talking we're talking about um their their sort of partnership with uh, transgender influencer dylan mulvaney that's right and look, Dylan Mulvaney did nothing wrong here. I think that's the first point to raise. I mean, just being what, you know, being an influencer was basically, and I think I've got my right pronoun, he still prefers his, I think, and my apologies if he doesn't, um, uh, was his crime. I mean, he, you know, he's he's come out of it with a lot more fame, but also a lot more appropriate as well. And he, he actually turned on the company as well when he wasn't given their support. But I think the bigger points that I took out of it, there's a couple, right? I don't know any marketer that 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 knows their salt and is well trained now that would argue with the point that we build brands to the mass market. Yeah, um, the the idea that you use segmentation and targeting for brand building is outdated. I I do think there's lots to be done with, with segmentation and targeting when it comes to product activation um, and the short term stuff. Absolutely. But at a brand building level, you you, I, you know, I now subscribe to the Ehrenberg Bass approach of sophisticated mass marketing, and I don't know anyone with a brain and training that doesn't. But when we get to America, we have a problem because as much as I love America and Americans, it's a society that's riven. I mean, it's broken down the middle. I mean, you see it in politics, you see it occasionally in sport. You know, it, it wasn't like that when I lived there, or, or be it twenty five years ago. And I'm not judging the country for it. Maybe that's how it wants to be. But it presents a strategic problem, which is whenever we're going to try and go out and do mass marketing to a a market which encompasses north, south, left, right, whatever it might be, we're going to run into this fracture, which is exactly what happened in this case. The other lesson for me about this is... And I don't want to talk about the individuals because I think they they suffered enough and were picked on and 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 I think received far too much negativity in the media. But if you look at the the now gone marketing team responsible for the decision um, uh, to to use Mulvaney and 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 work on that particular small micro campaign, 
the degree of naivety and incompetence was pretty stunning. If you read those interviews with the people responsible for the decisions, there was also that naive belief that if we push a purpose and representation argument, we will automatically make more money and grow sales. Because I think that's that's the, been the prevailing mistaken logic in American marketing now for for too long. I think we've, I think the left. The left-wing ideology of most marketers, not all, but most marketers, has dominated their more empirical market orientation. And I think they were all given a rude awakening when when this thing blew up. But hasn't their, their stock price now returned to normal? Their volume levels are, are heading back to normal? Yeah, but th that's a different... So the reason AB InBev is pretty much flat for the year is because Bud Light isn't their only brand, and America isn't their only country, and no one else even knows about this saga outside of the United States of America. I think in Canada, it went up a little bit. So yeah, it, absolutely. But that's the story of why companies have diversified portfolios and global marketing. It, it, the Bud Light brand is, is probably in the long, long term going to recover, maybe. But yeah, the reason it isn't Bud Light is now okay and doing great. The reason is diversified portfolios. I think there's a great quote from the Anheuser-Busch CEO, so the guy that runs the business in the US, um, Michael Dukaris, Dukaris, something like that. He said in the end, customers want to enjoy their beer without a debate. And I, that nails it, okay? There's no upside to getting involved in socio-cultural uh, issues at this degree of heat. There is no upside, right? There is an enormous, as we now see, potential downside. And what companies need to do is stick to their knitting. Now, that doesn't mean they should put up with any transphobic, uh, homophobic, or any yeah, and, and, this, and this is the rub, you know, because it's it's the implication is that... that um, that is your brand not for minority groups of any kind, which this this is like the tension, right? Because yeah, uh, yeah. we're not we're, uh, you know, if they did this, it should be a reflection of their values. And if it was a reflection of their values, they should never have treated uh, Dylan Mulvaney the way they did. Absolutely. The problem isn't what Bud Light did. The problem is what the people who disagree with. Um, uh, equality did about it. That's what caused the problem, right? It was like the reaction, yeah. not the action. Well, look, look at it another way. I think, going back to our discussion on purpose, if AB InBev had said, we believe in trans rights to such a degree that we are ready to lose money on Bud Light in order to support um, a, a series of spokespeople and we're going to change direction, Let's go. Um, uh, sign up because that's a proper purpose. It will cost us money to get rid of bigots that don't support trans rights, but we believe in that so much we're going to hurt ourselves. That's not what they were saying, right? They the problem in this debate comes down to this same recurring issue. Again, the teenage fallacy that by following a purpose, we will always make more money and grow the brand. That's an oversimplification of a complicated socio-cultural issue in a riven society that either celebrates and supports trans rights or opposes them or, or doesn't want them part of their particular brand. And, and my point in brand management is make choices, but make choices based on if it's purpose and you really believe in that, and amen if you do, 
then go forward with an honesty that isn't the naivety we saw on display um, at AB InBev. Do the right thing and expect to not necessarily make money in the short term from it. The number one marketing moment of 2023 is no surprise here ai ai it's gotta be gotta be so i i'm a as you know you know me pretty well i'm uh i'm a big skeptic of tech i think companies and marketers spend too much on tech stacks i think they're they were obsessed with the uh with the metaverse, which was an entire red herring. So I started out the year going, here we go again, artificial intelligence, wah, wah, wah. And that only grew, the cynicism only grew when I saw all these losers on, on LinkedIn programming stuff on chat GPT-2 and then saying, look what I've done. I've invented a, you know, a fucking AI thing that makes this and makes that. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is embarrassing for you. And then two things happened. So I, I, you know, I have a lot of time for the great American business schools. I spent my time at MIT and at Minnesota and at Wharton. I think all those schools are out of touch, but I also think the people there are two things, incredibly uh, straight and objective about things. They're not on the take like the industry is. And second, they're the best mathematicians on the planet. I mean, they're exceptional. Uh, I mean, that's that's the problem. They're not really marketers in the marketing departments of the top American business schools. They're mathematicians. But what I saw from my colleagues, many of whom I've stayed in touch with, was they all started to find the same thing, which is synthetic data, which is data derived from AI that represents and replicates primary consumer research was turning up to be 90, 95% identical to customer data. So if you haven't heard the phrase synthetic data, it'll be like COVID-19. Get used to it because you'll hear it a lot more next year. So, you know, there, there's some there's numerous examples where when you do some primary research that takes, you know, two or three weeks, costs you 50 grand is a pain in the ass. And then you compare it to what AI instantaneously can produce, both qualitatively and quantitatively, it's basically identical. So first I started to see the synthetic data. And then in the US, uh, there's one particular startup that I'm still not allowed to name until January, which is made up of a lot of stellar marketers with very storied backgrounds where they're now able to take the synthetic data and build AI dashboards that are generating segmentation, funnels, excess share of voice, pricing analysis, objective setting, category entry points. So these are all the things that if you hired McKinsey and paid them 50 million bucks, they would do a relatively bad job of. But no marketer, even at Diageo or P&G, has all of this perfectly. What I was seeing in New York and it's 30, 40% there now, was an instantaneous system where you enter your brand name and before your eyes, your category entry points, the synthetic panels are created. You can ask consumers questions. The pricing data comes through. And the real finishing point is when all of this dashboard is complete and all and the ESOV talks to the segmentation, which talks to the funnels, which talks to objective setting, when it all connects together, we can run Monte Carlo uh, analyses of a billion different iterations and produce what should be the right three or four objectives for you, you to build your brand. And I've seen that, and I'm a believer in it. I don't think it's next year. I don't think it's going to come from people playing around with ChatGPT. 
which is kind of like the internet before Google. I think by 2025 and onwards, the business of marketing is radically transformed by AI. It is Mark Ritson, marketing professor, columnist at Marketing Week, strategic advisor, uh, longtime guest on this show. It is, uh, uh, and also has a fantastic um, mini MBA program that you can check out online. So, uh, Mark, thank you, man. Thank you for spending a little bit of your Christmas holiday with us. Oh, my pleasure, mate. And and well done again on another smashing year of of uh, of podcasts. I tell you, it's been. Um, You've kept me company on many a, a cold uh, night walking the dog. So thanks again for lots of wonderful stuff. And um, I guess I'll see you in the new year and uh, we'll do this all again, eh? You got it. Thank you, man. And we will see everybody after the great holidays uh, and on the next episode.